Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Bob. Bob. Bob, can you bring me her book off the kitchen? Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, hey, what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Got a good episode tonight. We actually have um, Kathleen DiCaria. Uh, with the Hidden Connection, really, really good book. I read it um, in probably about three or four days, and it kind of hits on everything. But it's a really, really good book. And before I bring Kathleen on, we're going to talk a little bit about vaccines. So, as I did a post on my blog, I'm the Fat Man blog about vaccines, and what I'm finding out is a lot of people don't know what's in vaccines. They know the end result is that it's supposed to help us with. Uh, uh, counteracting the measles and counteracting uh, anything else that's communicable, but we really, really don't know what's uh, in that. And I think we might touch on a little bit of that tonight when I'm on the show with uh, Kathleen, but I did a blog on that and I kind of take you through what I think um, vaccines uh, are going to end up as, so to speak. And I also give you a, a really brief rundown of what's in vaccines and why you need to be concerned, because not only are our children being vaccinated, we also have instances where nurses are having to vaccinate themselves against uh, their beliefs. And we also have a situation where adults have to get vaccinations as well if they're in uh, different types of workplaces. So um, you want to check that blog post out. And as always, uh, connect with me on all the social media. I'm on Facebook, Facebook slash I'm the Fat Man. You can connect with me on Twitter at the Fat underscore Man. I'm also on Pinterest, which I believe under my real name, which is Darren McDuffie. So you can connect with me on all of those different outlets and just start helping me build this community because I want to bring you the best and most important health information out there. It just seems as though a lot of people are getting things after the fact. And you want to kind of be on top of these things because our world is really, really changing, especially when it comes to health care. We're more of a sick care. Uh, we have more of a sick care mentality than we do have a, what we call a health care uh, mentality. And by listening to this show and listening to other shows as well and paying attention to these authors, uh, authors of these books, you really get to be uh, from a proactive standpoint instead of a reactive standpoint. So I'm going to get off my soapbox and uh, introduce Kathleen DiCaria. This was a very, very good book, and I would recommend that you go on Amazon and get the book. It's it's, uh, in hardcover and also on Kindle, and she was gracious enough to send me a copy, and I read it and was really, really taken aback by it. But without further ado, let me bring Kathleen DiCaria on. Good evening, Kathleen. Welcome to Perfectly Healthy Intone Radio. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm 
can't say enough good things about your book. I was flabbergasted as I was reading the book, and there were some things. And actually, there was a question I had in my mind uh, a long, long time ago, and your book kind of cleared that question up for me, and I'll ask you a little bit later about that to kind of elaborate on that. But from reading your book, I think that I feel like I know your family. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I feel like I know you. I feel like I know your sons, your husband, and also your mother, and but I wanted you to kind of get into your background and how you got started in the uh, in the health field because you kind of took like a total 360 from where you were to kind of get into writing a book on health. Yeah, I think like a lot of people that get into the health and nutrition, certainly holistic nutrition or functional nutrition, get to it through their own experience, right? So they have some type of health crisis, and my story is no different in that respect. I was working in corporate America. I had a great job I that I loved. I had been doing for almost 10 years. We had um, two little children at the time. We had just bought a new house. So my husband and I were both athletic and living what we thought were was a healthy lifestyle, you know, exercising and, and eating healthy or what we perceived to be healthy. And I had um, sudden onset neuropathy, which is not uncommon. Um, your listeners probably would, would know what that that is, or they may know somebody who's had it, but it's nerve pain in the legs. Um, it usually comes on suddenly, although there is often a triggering event. Um, you People tend to injure their back, and then they get this nerve pain in their leg, um, which is because there's a compression in the spinal cord. And that's exactly what happened to me, although I don't know what the triggering event was. It came on suddenly. Um, I did what most people do, and I put hot patches on it and ice and heat and tried to stretch it out, and it just got worse and worse, and over three days it it had accelerated to preventing me from bearing any weight on my leg. And that was, I no longer returned to work after that, so that was the beginning of a a very vicious spiral downhill uh, because I ended up having back surgery after trying to rehab it for about five to six months, and then ultimately had had a very standard uh, medical procedure called an L4, L5 laminectomy and discectomy. So that's just to remove that part of the the nerve compression. And then ideally I should have been home after a couple of days. Um, The problem is that I woke up um, with paralysis. So uh, that was an unexpected reaction that I had. There was no severing of the nerves. It was later discovered that it was a condition called conversion disorder, where you have almost like a PTSD of the uh, uh, neurological system and the emotional system. It's like PTSD of the emotions is, is, or, or is the only way I could describe it. And, it, it's, can sh- and it's a medical condition, and it shuts down uh, your function of your limbs. So mm-hmm. in my and case, P- the legs. And PTSD, for the listeners out there, I hope I get this right, is post-traumatic stress disorder? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so. so that was a condition that I had, and, it, and there was, there's no idea, you know, at the time, you don't know how long it's going to last. It can be weeks, it can be months, it can be years, it can be intermittent, it can come and go. That was all I knew. Um, so I was in the hospital for a week and then transported to my home into a guest room where I stayed um, with visiting nurses. Um, and then everything else sort of unraveled from there. So like I go through in my book, I really ended up with multiple conditions, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic pain syndrome, 
uh, all of my tissue was tightening and contracting and not relaxing. I became allergic to everything, allergic to food, allergic to my environment. So it was, in essence, a a full storm, right, or the perfect storm of the immune system overreacting. And I didn't really, the book that I wrote, The Hidden Connection, was really to talk about the fact that I didn't really understand what was happening. And I didn't, and I, and I was so overwhelmed and, and suffering so much that I almost couldn't figure it out on my own. I didn't have the, the strength or the mental capacity to deal with it. So, you know, I, I, I wrote that book so that I could inspire other people who are struggling and in that vicious cycle of not knowing what's happening. Now, their trigger might not be a surgical trigger. It can be emotional. It can be any other trigger. But in essence, what's happening is that body is is now having uh, an immune response, and and that was making me sick, and I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. I had medication uh, and surgery were my only options. Mm-hmm. What brought you to the point where you were you said, you know what, I I have to start taking control of my health. What what was the turning point for you? Desperation. Uh, you know, I was so permanently disabled. Um, they said that uh, I would not recover. Um, even though I was fairly young, they said, uh, meaning my medical support team, and I went to Boston and went to the best hospitals, um, you'll be on long-term disability and Social Security for life. Here's your check. Um, and we don't, the, only progno- you know, the only option you have is to medicate and to manage the pain that way. And then you essentially have to manage the disease. So I... I did that for a couple of years, and I just knew that this there had to be a better way. It was a strong intuition. I think that on many occasions I was discouraged from thinking that way, um, but I was something in me was more powerful than than those messages. Um, and I still remember the actual moment. I, I t- tell a lot of people when I talk about my story, you know, one on one with people when they ask me what you just did, and I do remember the exact moment where that intuition got really strong. And it was just a feeling. I described it as a feeling. I asked my husband if he had that feeling inside, something kind of stirring in the belly. And he said, you mean like a nervousness before a game? Or, you know, he made sort of a sports analogy. And I said, no, not really. And and that's what I know now. It was a really strong, intuitive sense. And I just said, I can't go on like this. I just can't. And even then, I didn't think that I was going to be able to have some kind of miraculous recovery. I just knew that I had to try something. Mm-hmm. And so I just I stopped watching any form of TV. I stopped anything that consumed my... I literally haven't watched TV in like five years and just read everything I could. So over 200 books specifically on nutrition and how mm-hmm. they relate to the body. Um, and dedicated uh, almost, I well, calculated them up, uh, 2,000 hours specifically to reading and research and understanding what might be happening in my body. Yeah, yeah, it sort of sounds so similar to mine. After my mom died, that's what happened to me. I had this epiphany that there was so many things out there that I didn't know. And just like you, I just started to read book after book after book, and I'm still reading books now to this mm-hmm. day. And um, it just sounds so very similar to to what I went through. Uh, there's a question I had for you that uh, when I was reading the book, even in the first chapter of the book, you talk about your mom and how your mom um, was sick and then you became sick. And then ultimately 
you know, you had, I believe, one son that was autistic. One of the things that always comes to me, and I've had this question from people when I go out and talk or, you know, they know that I'm interested in health, is can sickness be passed from generation to generation? What is what is your thought on that? Oh, definitely. I, th- I think, for one, when I think all disease starts before we're born. So what I know now from just my own understanding of my body and how, you know, where I came from and the condition of my mother's health before she had me, was I born vaginally versus C-section? Did she have a healthy gut microbiome? Did she have a healthy diet? Was she exposed to chemicals? So even before you're looking at the genetic component, even just that the health of the mother. So when people talk about prevention to me, I say, I hope you're talking about talking to parents before they become parents, before they even get pregnant, because that's where true prevention is. It's teaching women and men, before they decide to conceive and have babies, how to build a healthy body and how to prevent that. And then ultimately, you know, that follows through all the way through the the pregnancy and the birth. So no question about it. I think that um, when I look back at my mother's health, um, and then I look at the health of myself and my siblings, there's some very clear markers there about what happened. We can even follow that back to the health of my grandparents, my my mother's uh, sisters, no doubt, no doubt about it. And then I, in turn, had the same experience with my own children. There are things, choices that I made that I didn't know were affecting my health that then ultimately affected them. And I can give you a specific example. Um, so in my teenage years, I had uh, an, a duodenal ulcer that was persistent. And I ended up getting treated for a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, which is short, is it called H. pylori. Mm-hmm. And that was treated with an antibiotic, which at the time the research showed that you can prevent uh, ulcers, or 50% of the ulcers are basically reversed or eliminated in patients once they're treated with an antibiotic for this bacteria. But if you start to really understand why certain bacteria show up and why they exist in the body, um, they're all there for a reason. Sometimes they become too dominant, and so that's really the solution as opposed to wiping it completely out with a bacteria because in doing that, I did rectify the the fact that I no longer have a, had a duodenal ulcer, but then I was unable to hand down that H. pylori bacteria to my children. And I was reading um, Dr. Martin's book called Missing Microbes, and there was some really interesting discussion in his book about the benefits of handing down even what we perceive to be these bad bacteria and how they can potentially protect us from other autoimmune diseases. So sometimes our decisions are short-sighted because we don't have all the facts or, we don't, or we're working off whatever information is available to us. But in essence, we are really setting up the next generation for conditions that could have been prevented or perhaps I could have done things differently for them when they were infants that would have increased their, you know, their benefits of 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 not getting certain conditions. So to answer that in a in a long-winded way, yes, I think it's uh definitely can be handed down and then I also think, you know, genetics, which is a whole different discussion, um but but an exciting one too, but we could make yeah, that connection yeah. as well, you know. Yeah, if anyone's out there listening have a question for Kathleen, you can call in to the show at 646-716-9371 
71. Kathleen, getting into, um, you just discussed how you can hand things down to your uh, children. I thought it was interesting in your book how you said we start our infants off on, in, on the wrong digestion. And one of the things I've always thought about was the fact that when I was a child, and even I see you know younger kids today, their parents are starting them off eating apple juice, um, most of the time we're starting our children off with with cereal grains and, and different things. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And what do you work with anyone? I don't know if you, you practice now or working with people to change that if they're having, you know, they have, they have kids to kind of change the kids uh, as at an early age where they're not destroying their, their digestion to begin with. Yeah. Oh, such a good question. You know, Somebody sent me a, me a question today, a, a friend of a friend who has a baby who's the child, the infant is uh, six months, and she's been presented now with this question of first foods and how do I, what do I introduce, and there seems to be some reaction to dairy and, and things in the child. The child is breastfed um, but was reacting to dairy in the mother, and of course she went to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, well, as of six months, from six to 12 months, the child is going to need an increased uh, level of iron, which is true because the uh, storage of iron depletes. They don't. They get enough from mom from zero to six months through breastfeeding, and then seven to 12, they need about 11 grams of iron. And so typically what's recommended is rice cereal or grains because they're fortified with iron. And she's really nervous. This mom is just starting to poke around a little bit because the child is having food reactions already. And so she's starting to think, gosh, is this going to really exacerbate the eczema and the colic and the reactions that I'm already noticing him? Am I going to be making things worse? So she was asking me for advice. Um, and it's really difficult because you're getting information from your pediatrician and you trust them and you, you know that they have your child's best interest. So that certainly we hope is their, is their intention. And so it's a confusing time for parents. And so I don't think that grains are the best first food. And it's one of my greatest regrets um, for my children because my children don't, um, we all have food sensitivities in, in our family. And I think that you significantly increase your chance of your child not tolerating grains later in life if you do an early exposure. And part of that is directly related to digestive enzymes that we don't have at that age. And so there are other foods that are better tolerated and more traditional um, than doing the grains. And then I suggest more simple grains like the rice grains um, later, like after a year. So there's a schedule that people can look at. There's a couple of good resources. Weston A. Price Foundation is probably mm -hmm. the best resource for looking for specific ideas on you know, what types of traditional foods our ancestors incorporated um, as safe first foods. And I think we look at that information and sometimes get a little bit turned off by it because it might say egg yolks or liver, you know, or mashed banana. And people think, I can't give my baby liver, right? Or, you know, or I can't give my baby egg yolks. But, but those foods are so nutrient dense and so rich. You're really giving them such a high quality and they need such a small amount um, that, that they really are more ideal foods than these, than, than rice cereal. But it's it's a, it's we have to unlearn it. It's a hard thing to shift your perspective um, to think that those things might be appealing to a child. Um, and I also think you're doing a greater 
good for your child to make those early exposures to real food because the children don't create a palate um, for white processed foods, which is what I what ended up happening with my third son who, you know, I was more educated, so I knew better. And so it wasn't uncommon for him to eat sauerkraut or avocado or, you know, fruits and vegetables. They tasted better to him. You know, he wasn't eating mac and cheese and white flowers and breads. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because I think a lot of times with children, they get their opinions of foods from their peers. I know like when I was a kid growing up, because every all the other kids were saying, ew, liver is nasty, I would just sit there and yeah. be like, ooh, liver is nasty. <laughs> but, That's right. I mean, I sure. like liver. I like liver now. It's not like, you know, it's the nastiest thing in the world. But I remember when I was a kid, just because I wanted to fit in, I would say that things were nasty, especially things like vegetables, and I love vegetables. And I'm like, how much of that is influenced by what our peers think and us just trying to fit in? Right. Well, I think the good news is when they're really little, we don't have to worry too much about that. So those first few years of life, you know, they're not going to be influenced by their peers, like you said. And so that's a great opportunity for us to really influence their diet with nutrient-dense food and give them the great start. Because as the immune system develops and their digestive system develops, we can create, we, we really can be more flexible. You know, I, I know that people can get really rigid in thinking, well, no grains or no this or no that. Um, but I think with children, you do have to expose them to a variety of foods. And so your your best opportunity is to cre- set them up for success. So don't create those allergic reactions early. Don't give them foods that are going to be difficult for their body to digest. Ease in those whole foods. And then when they get to those ages where they want to be around their friends, you know, you're going to have a little bit more flexibility um, than worrying about full-on food allergies, which is an yeah. epidemic in this country right now. Yeah. You had two good quotes. I wanted to read one of them, and then I wanted to kind of delve into the second one and get you to expand on it. But one of the, the, the better quotes in your book that I that kind of, like, turned the light on for me and made me uh, say, you know what, I wish I could tell this to every person that I encounter. It's, the first one was, it's not about what you eat, it's about what you digest. Why are so many what you digest? And then I had a question for that one, sorry. But then the other one that I wanted to to, to uh, talk about and get you to expand on was, more often than not, people attempt to fit into dietary theory rather than discover a dietary approach that is right for them. And I'm like, wow. Because so many people will come to me and ask me, well, what should I eat? And when I used to be in the fitness side of this, I would always suggest the same things that I saw everybody suggesting, brown rice, uh, eat chicken breast, and all these things that I had read in bodybuilding magazines. But Mm -hmm. I wanted you to kind of expand on that and and even take it a little bit further and really – mention why you think people don't want to experiment. They tend to jump on the paleo wagon, which there's nothing wrong with paleo. Or they tend to jump on vegetarianism or something like that without really finding out the nuances of all these different diets. Yeah, it's. I'm in the same boat. People will say, oh, what should I eat? Or I'm eating a paleo diet. What do you think? And I'll and I said, well, what do you think? And they'll say, well, should I be doing that? Is it a good diet? Why do you have that face on? And I'll say, well, you tell me. Is it a good diet? How do you feel? Do you feel great? Have you never felt better? You're not having any symptoms? And they say, well, no, not really. I do have, you know, I have this or I have that. I said, well, then you've just answered your question. It's probably not a good diet for you, but that's up to you to figure out. And so I think people don't really want to hear the truth. 
I, I really, I think people just want you to validate that what they're doing is right. So it, it's easier to just fit into a realm to say, oh, this is a diet and this is what I'm going to do. And this is an approach that my sister and my cousin and my best friend are doing. And they're going to this new gym and this is what they said to do. And they've had great results, so I should just do it too. But I'd, I wouldn't make the same recommendation to the same person at different places in their life. So, for example, if somebody is sitting across from me and they are 45 years old and they have chronic adrenal fatigue and weight loss resistance and, and acne and they have low energy and they're just falling apart, they feel like they're sick all the time and they can't get better, I am not going to make the same dietary recommendations to that person that I would have made to that same person 20 years earlier if they were sitting in front of me and said, I want to get pregnant. I want to have a baby. I want to, you know, because the goals are different. The situation is different. Their hormones are different. What they're dealing with is different. So everybody's diet is supposed to change based on what your goal is. If you're looking to compete in a triathlon, then your dietary requirements are going to be significantly different from somebody who's trying to reverse an autoimmune disease. I mean, it's just night and day. You cannot make a dietary decision based on what you think is going to work for you. It's, you have to flip it around and say, well, what is my objective right now? Is it to increase my energy? Is it to reverse this awful skin condition that I have? Is it because I want to have a baby? You know, do I want to lose weight? Whatever it is, and then that you have to then ask that question of yourself, and then you have to discover how it is that you're going to do that. So one of the reasons why I broke my book down into those major components of discovery, education, action, and prevention mm -hmm. is because discovery is the magic. It's the key. Because when you go through the discovery phase, which essentially is an elimination diet, it's it's figuring out you know what it is, taking a lot of those top allergens out. You don't have to call it an elimination diet. You just have to know what the top allergens are. You pull them out of the diet for a short amount of time, and then you reintroduce them one at a time. It's the only way you're going to know how food is affecting you. Nobody, the, most people have no idea how their food affects them. They don't know if it gives them energy. They don't know if it depletes them. They don't know if that's why they have knee, knee pain and migraine headaches. They have no idea. So if you take it out of your diet for 10 days and then one at a time reintroduce one food and then wait three days before you bring in another food, you're going to know what impact that food has on you. You know, does it make you tired? Does it exhaust you? If you go through that exercise, you'll, you'll start right there with a base foundation for a diet that works for you initially, and then you build off of that. Any other approach by trying to plug yourself into a macrobiotic diet or a vegetarian diet is setting yourself up for fail. You're going to have issues with metabolism and, uh, you know, balancing your hormones and all these other things. So you, you just have to simplify the process and then build from there. And that's how I teach people to do it. Yeah, that's very interesting that you kind of get got into um, one of the big areas that I believe in, and that's food sensitivity testing. I actually used to work for a company that specialized in that, and um, many of the things that you talk about in your book when it comes to food and sensitivities, food intolerance, and food allergies was what I saw on a, a lot of people's tests. Milk was always a big, big thing that came up on people's tests. Um, soy, uh, eggs. Eggs was a really, really big one. 
And um, I made the correlation with the vaccines, like in a lot of the vaccines, they use uh, egg protein in them. So a lot of children already have that sensitivity to eggs. But why is it that people really don't believe that food affects them? And most of the time it's something that you're eating every day because I've suffered from gluten sensitivity and I used to just love gluten, everything gluten. <laughs> I ate cookies, yeah, if you want to know I ate pizza. If you want to know what somebody's allergic to, just ask them what they have for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. The, the food that we crave the most after we've fasted for 10 to 12 hours while we're sleeping is, is almost always, it's like a 90%, you know, and, and this is just kind of a fun question, but it's a good way to start out your lecture or if you're giving a lecture to a small group of people, you know, 10, 20 people ask everybody in the room what they had for breakfast and people kind of call out answers and almost always, you know, because it's either going to be cereals or waffles or muffins or yogurt, right? So all the dietary triggers are there. Soy, corn, gluten, dairy, eggs. Everybody's reacting to one of them. And the, I, the thing, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's a problem. There's a lot of things in the vaccines. And I know you said you wanted to talk a little bit about that, and that can really set people up for food sensitivities. But mm-hmm. my feeling... For everything, I mean, from food sensitivities to vaccines to environmental issues to any dietary uh, reaction in the body, is 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 immune related. It's it's always going to be your best bet to build a strong offense. That's your best defense is a strong offense. And if you can build a strong immune system, your body's ability to tolerate things is going to be significantly stronger. And you're going to reduce your reaction to other foods. And eggs is one that falls into that category. It's one of the top allergens, but it's also one of the most common foods that I can bring back into people's diets after they've healed the gut lining or their mucosal lining in the small intestine. Not always true for gluten. I haven't seen anybody be able to do that once there's been an immune system trigger with gluten. Uh, but but eggs is one of those foods that's a high reaction food but can often be reintroduced if you do proper gut healing. Most people will take it out of the diet and they never do proper gut healing and so then they try to bring that food back in and it and they constantly have a reaction to it. So if you do the right thing and then bring it back in, your tolerance level is you have better better chance of tolerating yeah. it long term. It's such a great food. One thing that I've learned and I think you might have probably experienced this is that once you take those foods out that you are actually sensitive to and your immune system isn't bogged down by fighting those uh, antibodies, then you really realize how sensitive to them you are when you try to reintroduce them back into your diet, if you're truly sensitive to them, if you're not doing any type of gut healing. Because I know for me, I had no idea I was sensitive to things like black pepper and just different little spices and things like that. And then when I started eating them again i even went through a gut healing protocol and then sometimes you just can't avoid some of those things and i remember eating them again and i remember the the feeling that hey i can feel this now whereas when my immune system was bogged down and fighting all the foods that i was sensitive to you can't really feel them but it's amazing how sensitive your body is once you figure out that hey this is something that i'm sensitive to and i'm pulling out my diet and when you reintroduce it back in you will know if you sense you're really sensitive sensitive to it or not exactly and i you know what it is i think what you've just described Aaron, is you lifted the burden off the body and so mm-hmm. i just i use an analogy of 
a dirty windshield. If you had a really dirty windshield and you were driving down the road and a speck of dirt hit it, you probably wouldn't notice it. But if you have a brand spanking new car and that windshield is shining and a bird drives over you and poops on the windshield, you're going to see it, right? It's going to be in your face. Oh, look at my windshield is dirty. It's the same thing when you have food sensitivities and reactions. When you are bogged down with inflammation and, and you've been tolerating for so long, you don't notice it. It's like the dirty wind. You don't even notice it. And as soon as you lift that burden off, take all that inflammation out of the body by taking off those, taking out those foods that are creating that inflammatory response, it's easy to pick up. So it's not that you've become hypersensitive as much as you've become very aware. You can now measure it. Mm-hmm. You know, Because people will say, oh, now that I've cleaned up my diet, I'm allergic to foods that I used to be able to eat. So this is the thinking, right, that, oh, now I've reintroduced them and I got a migraine. Or my no. knee started hurting, right? Yeah, and I said, well, you always had pain, and you had ex, you know, 12 other symptoms that you no longer have. So now when you bring that food back in and you feel a sensation that feels uncomfortable and, and you don't like, you think you have, you're hypersensitive, but you've already eliminated 12 symptoms that you've been living with for the last two decades. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, a, it's a reaction that people are just uncomfortable with. Yeah, we're talking about those interactions with the food sensitivities. Obviously, they occur in the gut. Um, why do you think there are so many gut problems now? It's, it's seen, I don't think anybody, because coming from a standpoint of someone who's uh, what I consider healthy myself, I had gut problems, and I'm still working on healing my gut problems. And why do you think that so many people are having all of these problems with their with their guts? Oh, my goodness, the million-dollar question. Um well, I think that there's a number of assaults. I mean, I think for one, people are under a lot of chronic stress. So I think the biggest culprits for gut-related damage, I'll kind of give you my top four, even though you know there's a long list. I think I put in my book sort of the main, um, the main causes like antibiotic use and um, you know poor digestion and, and things like that. But I'll give you my top four. First one is definitely poor diet and overconsumption of gluten and grains and um, proteins that are, you know, difficult to digest, like casein and gliadin, um, not properly uh, fermenting grains and proper preparation of foods, a lot of conventional dairy, um, which I don't think is a good uh, food for anybody. Um, genetically modifying our foods is altering the gut microbiome, and then too many sugars, um, even too many nuts and seeds that are high in phytic acid. So it's this poor diet. Uh, and this is just going beyond, these are people that are actually trying to be healthy. So forget about, you know, the fact that a processed food diet or a diet with hydrogenated oils and um, and, and junk food, that, that in and of itself is destructive. But even for people who are atten- intentionally trying to recover and live a healthy lifestyle, sometimes it's just still too much focus on poor diet choices that can break down that, that gut problem. The second one is emotional stress, chronic low-lying stress, um, which leads to poor sleep and poor recovery. People have lost that whole circadian rhythm in the body, and so they have their their adrenals are exhausted. They're staying up at late, late at night and not restoring, getting restorative sleep. Then they're getting up in the morning. They, they don't even have enough cortisol to get up in the morning, and then they stimulate themselves with coffee. Then they exercise and all of this is sort of depleting the body because they're already in an exhaustive state and they have a job that they hate, they're stressed. 
right? They have a financial mm-hmm. burdens, family issues, and all of that chronic low-lying stress is just wreaking havoc on the digestive system. Um, and you can ask people about times in their life when they think that their health took a turn for the worse, and almost always people can trace it back to an emotional time or something traumatic that happened in their event, uh, event that happened in their life, and they can say, yeah, I, I, that's when things kind of got out of control. My mom got sick. I had a miscarriage, I lost my job, whatever it is that really started that vicious cycle. Um, the third one would be bacterial imbalance. I mean, you could we could talk for hours just about the bacterial imbalance. That's just such an area of interest for me because much like you're saying, Darren, even people that are consciously really trying to do gut healing and change their gut, I think the, the biggest area of, of interest and in, in research is already and has been looking into this, is our microbiome, specifically what types of bacterial strains are influencing the health of our, of our, of our life, our met- metabolism and our autoimmune condition. So we know now the research tells us you can take the bacteria from an obese person and inject it into the intestines of a rat and feed two rats the same diet, and the rat who has the bacteria from the obese person will become obese. And we can Mm -hmm. also induce autism in mice by taking bacteria from the gut of an autistic individual and putting it in the mice. And and also true to reverse it in mice by putting a specific bacteria back in. So the bacteria is, is changing not only our physical body, whether we're obese or thin, but also whether or not we develop autoimmune symptoms. So that is huge. And I think that's probably the area where it's hard for us to do that on our own, right? Like we don't have a lot of information about what is my bacteria like? What do I, what can I do? So I've done GI testing, you know, stool cultures to see what kinds of bacteria are in my gut already. What do I need more of? What's missing? Do I have any pathogens or bacterial overgrowth that's now systemic that may be creating low-line inflammation? People can also submit their uh, a sampling of their gut uh, tissue or their microbiome to the uh, the American Gut Project, so they can go online and there's research being done to collect uh, information on the population's gut microbiome, and they'll send you a kit, uh, and you can you know use saliva samples, skin samples, stool samples, and send that in. I don't think the kits are that expensive; they might be about a hundred dollars a piece. So that's an huh. interesting way to see what your gut microbiome is. So really, really interesting ways for us to think about exploring our predisposition for illness and um, and other chronic health issues and how that relates to our bacteria. And then my final one would be toxic overload. So people taking antibiotics, antibacterial lotions, chemicals, fluoride, chlorine, you know, uh, plastics, uh, beauty products, all of that puts an incredible burden on the body, um, which influences the health of of our immune system and our gut. And people don't often make that relationship, but healthy living is really a full-body experience. You know, you can eat all the kale in the world and still be very unhealthy. Yeah. So we can be doing other things. What are your thoughts on self-medication? I've heard so many different things about... um, we shouldn't be taking calcium. No one should be just taking calcium pills. And I don't know if you were following. I saw something not too long ago where uh, Target and Walmart were accused of 
carrying supplements that had nothing to do. They didn't have any of the vitamins in the the vitamins that they say were in the the bottle of the bottle like vitamin C. There was no vitamin C in there. But what are your thoughts on self medicating? Because I know a lot of people they just think, well, you know, I want to start taking vitamin C. I want to take you know some vitamin D. They do no testing. They don't know you know what they are nutrients they are depleted in. I, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I told my husband I was going to write a book on on our obsession with supplementation, and he said, Kathleen, don't because nobody will read it. You know, because people <laughs> love <laughs> people yeah. love supplements. It's true, including me. I mean, I couldn't stop myself. I'd see, you know, I'd get a new because I can get access to therapeutic grade supplements and some of the best. And I and I'd say, oh look at this! This is so fantastic. It'll support my mitochondria and it'll replenish my glutathione. And isn't it so? And then I have to slap myself because the truth is, you know, we really shouldn't be uh, over supplementing, right? And we can't really appreciate how we might be putting ourselves out of balance. So for every mineral, there's another mineral that, you know, uh, balances that out. And when we individually supplement with certain nutrients, we're automatically putting ourselves out of balance if we don't know our numbers. So if you're running a very comprehensive, like maybe you're doing a Genova Diagnostic NutraVal, right, which is very comprehensive and it's going to look at all of your your levels, and you see that you're severely deficient in particular vitamins like vitamin A or vitamin E, you know, then you could intentionally and specifically target certain nutrients and try to get your levels up. And same thing with vitamin D. But what we know now is that vitamin D is a great example. Oftentimes, we're not absorbing vitamin D because we're deficient in magnesium. So people will sometimes get a low vitamin D level, which is common with people with autoimmune conditions, but it can be magnesium and magnesium deficiency that's driving that number down. And the other thing to consider is that vitamin D is a hormone. And when we mm-hmm. supplement with something like that, we can put ourselves out of balance. We can get beyond the threshold. So I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, oh, well, I'm taking vitamin D, and I'll say, why? And they say, well, my doctor told me, you know, my physical, that my numbers were low, and he said I needed to supplement with vitamin D. And I said, well, when was that? And she said, oh, about 10 years ago. So this woman is supplementing. For 10 years, without ever questioning, she's just constantly taking vitamin D. So I said, do you know what your numbers are today? Have you retested those numbers? No, I haven't. I said, well, that's what you need to do. So we can't really play this guess standing what's really happening inside the body. Now, if you're working with a practitioner and somebody understands deficiencies and they know specific symptoms can be pre- presented when people have certain deficiencies, then that's mm-hmm. ideal because somebody is going to be well-educated and can monitor your reaction and or you, the benefits to that. But I think a very short-term targeted approach to supplementation is best, and ideally diet is the best way to do that, you know, in terms of long-term uh, nutrients, and then supplementation in areas where you cannot meet it dietarily. So, for example, I had somebody who was an airline pilot, pilot, and he just didn't have access to fresh produce. He was in the air a lot and then stopping at pit stops and going into an apartment that was shared by other pilots. You know, we barely could get a blender in there and try to get, you know, access to some 
to some healthy foods. So he was a good candidate for taking a multivitamin, multimineral, right, sort of like an insurance policy because he just didn't have access to a lot of really nutrient-dense food. So there are certain times when that would be beneficial, but I think for the most part people need to be very, very careful about self-supplementing or self-medicating conditions without really understanding what might be at play. Yeah. There were three questions that I wanted to kind of tackle before um, I let you go here. Uh, One was, you answered one of my questions because I've always wondered this, and you answered it uh, precisely in the book. Explain why women have more hormonal problems than men do. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, there are so many triggers for women, you know, between childbirth and uh, menstrual cycles, uh, dietary triggers, uh, you know, women often react to dairy. Um, and there's just so much at play, I think, for women. Um, but, I, but I have to be honest with you, I think men are having a lot more hormone problems than they used to. Yeah, you know, I, think I think so, too. That a lot of, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I gave that example in the book of my husband, who was an all-natural bodybuilder um, years ago and is very naturally lean, and he was having a reaction to soy um, that de- that basically developed into enlarged breast tissue on one side called gynecomastia. And mm-hmm. I, it's not uncommon to see men with enlarged breast tissue today. And I think it's soy-related, and I think it's dairy, commercial dairy-related. Yeah, yeah. So it's too much estrogen, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of estrogenic chemicals that are out there and men with all of these it's like men wear more cologne and body lotions mm. and stuff than women do nowadays and they don't know the effects that it's having on them that's exactly right and and that's another you know you, you're touching on it yourself about why women might be more vulnerable to hormone imbalances and, and a lot of it is beauty care you know beauty care products yeah. and chemicals that are sort of overloading the body and I and I the number I knew the numbers at one time I don't know them now but I know they're pretty significant about the number of exposures that women have just in their daily routine you know say 42 chemical exposures before they've even left the house just with the amount of products that they use so the good news about making changes and simplifying the kinds of things that you're willing to use on your body is you do save a lot of money in that area but you just have to put it on the on the food on the the grocery bill. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, uh, kind of a break even, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? Actually, you end up, I've always told people this, I ended up saving more money when I eliminated certain things that I know I couldn't eat, especially from a food sensitivity realm, like bread. So normally you go to the grocery store, you always buy a loaf of bread. So I can't eat that anymore. Another thing is once you eliminate a lot of these you know, chemicals and things that you're putting on your, on your body, because for me, I use shea butter or coconut oil as, you know, a lotion or something like that. So I'm not really going to the store spending 5 or $6 for a bottle of lotion that's going to just turn into estrogen on me. So exactly. you end up saving money. Um, the other question I have for you, Kathleen, is the adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue uh, syndrome relationship. And it's amazing to me. I, I still work a full-time job, so I'm at work the other day, and I see someone. I see this all the time at my at my job. You see people come in drinking energy drinks in the morning. I'm like, dude, you just <laughs> you just got up. Why are you yeah. drinking an energy drink? 
But I, I mean, I always thought those two things were related. But uh, can you kind of put that into perspective for for me now with the adrenal fatigue and the chronic fatigue? And I think you suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome yourself, right? Right. Yeah. So they called. They diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was not producing enough cortisol in the morning, um, and my pregnenolone was my progesterone was low. And the, what my doctor told me at the time was, you you know, okay, well, your cortisol's a little low, but that's not really a big deal, and your progesterone is low, so you can just rub some progesterone cream on. Well, of course, that didn't work. Um, and when I ended up, you know, getting uh, further along in my education and, and learned to and was able to run my own tests, I ran my own tests and saw the same results, that I was in full-stage uh, three adrenal fatigue. I figured out that I needed to actually give my body the precursors that were affecting my ability to make progesterone, and so that's what I did. It's called pregnenolone, and often the body will steal pregnenolone in order to make more cortisol because it's being depleted. So I had adrenal fatigue. My body was getting exhausted and failing to adapt, so it started to steal the pregnenolone. So it was no longer available to make progesterone and DHEA and estrogen. So it was my body was trying to adapt and then it couldn't. So then it overrides and it tries to self-correct, and then it depletes the body. So you end up in this adrenal fatigue, um, which is very common. In fact, once you get beyond the full adrenal fatigue, you can go into a high energy. We call it tired and wired, where you have an increased energy amount. And actually, I met with a woman today who is amazing. That's exactly what she had. Her cortisol numbers were even lower than mine. She was in very low single digits. And she said, I feel so energetic in the morning, almost hyper, almost excited. I said, oh, yeah, no, that's not good. You know, And she was doing the same thing. She was having the coffee. So I said, well, then what you're also doing is you're stimulating yourself with a false sense of energy in the morning. You're depleting any reserves your adrenal glands have, and then you're crashing midday. I said, let me guess, around 3 o'clock you, you bomb. She said, exactly. And then I start eating like crazy. I'm, it doesn't even matter what it is. I just can't stop eating. And then I'm exhausted and go to bed at 9 o'clock. So she's in this kind of vicious cycle um, because her adrenals are, are exhausted and her circadian rhythm is completely off. You know, um, And so I did not tell her to take her coffee away because I think that's probably one of the hardest things to do when people have that routine of morning coffee. So the first change I have people do is to move their coffee to after lunch and hmm. use it as a, di- a digestive aid. And oftentimes people will report back to me and said, you know what, but right after lunch I really didn't need it. I wasn't in the mood. So just that All mentality right. shift of telling people that they don't have to stop drinking it, they just have to change the time that they have it. Because what I didn't want to do is have her... Uh, have it in the morning when she's got these low numbers. I want her cortisol level to come up a little bit. And so just in that shift alone, we can do that first stage. And then ultimately the ideal situation would be for her to come off it completely. But you have to teach people in baby steps. You have to meet them where they are. You have to give them the tools so that they can do it and stick with it. And nobody goes from being chronically sick and ill like myself or like you, Darren, and then suddenly, you know, there's pixie dust and unicorns going around because we just feel like superstars. You have to learn it. You have to practice it. You have to make mistakes. You have setbacks. You get better. And it's a journey that you just keep building on. 
and it's how most people who are long-term successful do it. And so if you can teach people to do it in that same way, then they're more inclined to stick with it, which is what you want. You don't want people to have these drastic, life-changing results, and then two months later they're back to their old habit. Yeah. Yeah, I get that question. Some people give me that question. Oh, well, I've been doing this and this and this, and why is it working? I'm like, you got to give it time. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> It's oh, but they like, like to be sick for 20 years, and then they want you to turn it around in three weeks. Exactly. It's like you don't yeah. gain 50 pounds overnight. It happens gradually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Most people don't That's realize right. that. The last yes. question I have for you, and um, I'll let you go. I know you, you know, your time is valuable, uh, was you had an interesting link. And we didn't talk a, a lot about the thyroid, but I find the thyroid to be interesting because I, I feel as though most women have thyroid problems. But you mm-hmm. talked about um, Dr. Datis Karazian's book where he said, and I, I didn't write the figures down, where he says that if a woman has hyperthyroidism or anybody has hyperthyroidism, rather, then it's most mostly uh, autoimmune Hashimoto's. Can you talk about right. that a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I think people miss the early warning signs. I think, um, you know, what ends up happening is that people sort of compensate. They get sort of early warning signs of of hyper or hypothyroidism. And it, it can be small things like, you know, irregular sleep patterns or cold hands and feet or fatigue. Um, they might have some increased weight gain or, you know, even just difficulty losing weight. They might have some memory issues or depression um, de- decreased libido, d- different things, and and they sort of manage it like most of us. We make excuses about what it might be or it might be other things. And because they're not really attending to those early warning signs, um, ultimately, you know, the body is constantly fighting that battle. And then, you know, once they have autoimmune disorder of the thyroid, whether it's hyper, which is Graves, or hypo, which is Hashimoto's, now you have autoimmunity. And so you're you're really dealing with a much more complicated issue and one that has to be really attended to for life. So my greatest gift, I think, is to try to help people early on to recognize that those early warning signs are so critical and, and to do so even with their other family members. So it's not uncommon for women with Hashimoto's to then have children with Hashimoto's. And again, we can see some of these early indicators. Uh, it's not uncommon for young children to get these rare spikes, fevers. So uh, you might have a young boy, age nine, who suddenly gets this unexplainable fever. The doctors don't know what it is. They say maybe it's viral. It comes and goes. That can be an early warning sign of thyroid disease. And so these are opportunities that we have before the body then attacks itself because, as your listeners might know, with Hashimoto's, it's the autoimmune system attacking the thyroid tissue. Once the thyroid is no longer functioning, you're required then to uh, to take uh, a thyroid, essentially a hormone. You have to replace the hormones that your thyroid would be producing. So your choice then would be a synthetic um, thyroid uh, hormone medication or a glandula. And and then you don't have a choice, right? So you're much further along. So finding, seeing those early warning signs, and then I make a list in my book of all the tests tests people should be asking their primary care for. And if they're not willing to do it, then they should go find a functional MD that is, and get very specific. If you have Hashimoto's or any thyroid conditions that run in the family, if you have symptoms that mimic. Uh, 
hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's or or hypo, ask those questions and and ask for specific tests that can help you put the pieces together. Don't wait for it uh, to be you know, full-blown, and look for optimal levels. Don't be looking to fall into the reference range if, let's say, if it comes back and and the reference range is 5 to 36 and you're a 5 and the doctor says, oh, you're within the range. Well, if the range is 5 to 36, then you might want to be somewhere in the middle, you know, up in the teens. Yeah. You don't want to be trending down because you could go back next year or the year after and then have full-blown autoimmune disease. So people really have to be their own best advocate um, they have to stop accepting that um, their role, uh, you know, is to just sit and listen, that they have to be actively communicating with their doctor about their concerns. And that's a really difficult thing to do because there's not a lot of practitioners who, A, have the time or, B, are willing to listen, you know. So you have to know what you're going to ask. You have to be informed before you go in. Make sure that whatever time you do have with your practitioner is meaningful and if you feel intimidated or uncomfortable, it's time to move on and find a different practitioner. Yeah. I come from the pharma industry, too. I worked in pharma for a while, and that, that kind of broke me out the um, the habit of being scared of my doctor. So when I, <laughs> anytime I go to doctor now, I ask him anything, everything, and I'll refuse things as well because I know, you know, from working that side of the industry that, you know, some of these things that they're suggesting are not really good for you. But um, I do enough self-care for myself now that I haven't really had a need to go to the doctor at all. So Right. You know. And I think, you know, it's not, I'm not no doctor. I'm not, I, I'm really pro-information. I'm, I think people just need to take responsibility for their own care and the care of their children. And mm-hmm. that takes effort. And we can't have this passive approach to our health. And, and, you know, the doctor's office should not be treated as a repair shop. We should really be going in and asking for specific information that we think will help us. And then work with your doctor because they're going to be a valuable part of your team if you have acute disease. That's who you're going to want to go to, you know, and you're really going to want to have a great relationship. So it can be done. You just have to have the confidence and the courage to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we got like maybe four, three minutes here. You're working on something very interesting. Tell us what you're working on. I believe it's a documentary. What, what's the documentary about? Yeah, so the documentary is a documentary of my story. Um, in our family of five, we had 21 chronic diseases that we reversed with diet alone. And that is um, genetically modified foods was a huge uh, trigger in our home, um, which was triggering a lot of conditions. And so uh, m- much of the story is, is about myself and my son, but all my children and my husband. And so uh, it is being edited now, and I have some more filming happening this weekend, and so I'm excited about that. I don't have news on when it will be available because it will be available privately first. Um, Mm -hmm. But that should be an interesting thing uh, for people to see so that they can make a relationship between that food connection and chronic disease um, with a real family who lived it. And and then I'll be educating other people. Um, So if any of your listeners are interested in being part of the documentary, Phase 2 will be me taking other people through the transformation that we had in our home. And Mm. they'll be part of that documentary because we'll be doing before, during, and after filming. Um, So we're looking for people on the West Coast, uh, Mid, Mid, Midland, and U.S., uh, East Coast. Oh, great, great. So I'm interviewing people now so they can reach out to me at uh, 
through my email or through your show. Okay. What is your uh, – oh, through my show. Do you want to give your email out? Sure. They can contact me at Road to Health, so it's like Rhode Island, R-H-O-D-E, the number 2, health at gmail.com, and they can just put type, type documentary in the, in, the, in the subject line and say that they're interested in learning more. Okay. And do you have a title for your documentary yet, or is it going to be the title of the book? Or? It's, oh, yeah, okay. no, it's not yet. Yeah, no, I'm the feature story, and they have exclusive rights to my story, but I'm. Uh, it's not. For, it's not up for me to name, I guess. Yeah. yeah so the production yeah. team will 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 do that. Well, I would definitely be taking a look at it once it, it comes right. out. Yeah, but um, I truly enjoy you being on. Good, great conversation. I love talking to people who seem to have the same philosophy that I have, and you know your stuff, so it was a really, really yeah. good conversation. I uh, really, really you like so having you on. Yeah, you're a great interview, Darren, and you just really get it, and I just appreciate so much um, having this conversation. It was equally enjoyable for me. Thank you. Um, Kathleen, hopefully before you become big and famous or famous-er, <laughs> if that's a word, I'll have to have you back on because I truly enjoy speaking yeah, with you. Sounds but, good. Uh, Thanks so much, yeah. Darren. Yeah, thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for your book. I really right. enjoyed it. All right. Oh, good. I'm glad. Good take night. Care. All right. Take care. Good night. All right. Well, that's a really good show. I really I definitely enjoy talking to Kathleen. Um, it just makes the world a safer place when we have people out there who are kind of looking out for us and giving us this material. And a lot of this stuff is not really hard to understand. I know sometimes we speak in scientific terms and all of this different stuff, but if I can give you one tip, um, one of the things I really learned in the, in the uh, pharma industry was a, a medical dictionary. And a lot of these terms are just terms of the medical industry, and for it, people shy away from them because they don't understand them and think that people are using big words. But if you want to learn more about your health, I would definitely invest in a medical dictionary. You could probably get one really cheap now because most stuff is online. Or you could either go on um, Google Medical Dictionary. You could just find one online and kind of Google the terms and start learning more about your health. Don't let yourself be intimidated by scientific terms and scientific words because these things really mean things that are really simple. It's kind of like lawyer jargon where you don't really know you're not a lawyer, so you don't know the jargon. But if you take a dictionary and look it up, you can really understand this stuff. So again, learn more about your health. Learn a little bit about what uh, what's out there and what's happening. And we touched on a lot of stuff last night. Really recommend getting Kathleen's book. It's called The Hidden Connection. It's on Amazon. It's in off Kindle and also uh, in hardcover form. So, again, thanks for listening to the show. Next week we'll be on with Dave Sandoval, who is the founder of Purium. He will be talking about green foods and what you need and how super nutrients of green foods. So that should be a good show next Wednesday at 8 o'clock, same fat time, same fat channel. I'll see you next time. See you next episode. Peace and love, y'all. Good night. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.